Greetings and salutations, one and all. Welcome to this episode of Risk and Reels. I'm your host, Jeffrey Wheatman, and today I am very excited to have my friend Patty Titus join us. Patty is the Chief Privacy and Information Security Officer for Markel Insurance, and Patty is an awesome CISO and an awesome Chief Privacy Officer. And we're going to have some fun today. We're going to talk about movies, and maybe if we have time, we'll talk about some cyber. So welcome, Patty. Thanks for joining us. Thanks, Jeffrey. It's always great to be on a podcast with somebody who has a sense of humor. That's Yes. Well, we'll see how it goes. Then you'll determine whether, in fact, my sense of humor is is any good or not. My wife and kids don't find me terribly funny. And as I tell them, um, if I'm entertaining myself, I'm good with them. So (laughs) awesome. All right. So um, let's start off with with some movie talk. Um, So... We see a lot of movies and they have, you know, the typical movie, right, is a very strong male character and he takes the lead and does all that stuff. I happen to be a much, much bigger fan of character-driven movies, but I like to see powerful women in movies. Um, I think they are underutilized. I think they're underrepresented. And I would be interested, Patty, to hear your thoughts. Who are some of your favorite powerful women lead characters? Or maybe even not leads, but... Who do you like? Who do you, who do you think is a good role model? Uh, so a couple. So one of my favorite, um, one of my favorite movies uh, is Holiday, and I will watch that anytime during the year. Um, I love Kate Winslet and I love Cameron Diaz, um, and the two of them play interesting positions and roles um, in the movie. So that's like my fa- one of my favorite movies. And I, I mean, I just watched it on the airplane the other day and my husband was laughing at me because I'm always watching it. Um, but I was, I'm going to tell you that the, the characters, the female char- characters that I thought had interesting lead roles were in the series Downton Abbey. And if you remember Downton Abbey back in the days, women did not have a prevalent position. And even though they were heirs to their father's dynasties, they weren't given the heir because they were women. Um, and, and I think about uh, Miss Patmore in the kitchen. And, um, I, I, you know, I just, I think of these, the female characters in that show actually made the show. And I also think um, that carried on into the movie that they did. And so it, that just showed me tenacity that women had in those days to actually drive the change that we actually see today in our own workplace, to be honest with you, although we succeeded from the British Empire. Um, and, and I should say that carefully because we are a global corporation, but. <laughs> so I, I love that. So I'm, I'm actually going to be honest. I've never actually seen the movie Holiday um, and I'm a huge movie person and I love Cameron Diaz and I love Kate Winslet. So I am going to, we, my wife and I always have a list of movies that we're going to watch and I'm going to, I'm going to put that on. And my, my daughter is 17 going on 37 and she, I love to give her examples of, of powerful women. So she's, I'm going to actually have her on the podcast at some point in the future. We have to figure out what she's going to talk about. She doesn't know anything about cyber, but that's okay. Most Um, of us don't. Are you kidding me? Let's, let's talk about Downton Abbey because I think that's a great example. And, and the funny thing is my wife begged me, let's watch this. I'm like, Oh, I don't want to watch that. And after the first episode, I said, honey, 
I've been trying to get you to watch this for ages and you keep saying no. See how good it is? I loved it. I was hooked from like the first 15 minutes. And the main female character, right? The whole beginning is built around the fact that she couldn't inherit. Yeah. And that she had to go get married. I think that's a great example. And I love Miss Patmore in the in the kitchen. I thought she was amazing. And um the name's escaping me, but the 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 woman that ran the actual house, what was her name oh geez and i was just um, watching this last night um i loved her she was so good i loved her she because she she whipped that butler right into shape it was awesome and she always did it with dignity and respect and i think that was an interesting characteristic that many of us wish we could emulate in our in our work life um but i also loved the grandmother who appeared to have these secrets throughout the show that would rear themselves and you know the granddaughters would say you know try to confront her with it and she'd say you know had little quippy comments like you know i'm i'm not going to dignify that with an answer even if it seemed like she had been you know doing something that in those days was considered salacious so it's just such a it was such an interesting dynamic but i thought that movie was very the show was very much about um, a lot of times, a lot of our history that we don't think about. So the 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 voting rights, um, how you know the war happened, what really happened during the war to the whole the the whole British dynasty and the whole monarchy concept, um, and how you know telephones came in and radios came in and we're not going to have lights in this house. We're going to use candles. And, you know, you watch this change throughout the sequence and it's fascinating to me, fascinating. And they didn't have to deal with hackers. They just had to deal with marauders and, you know, women threatening, uh, you know, some sort of scandalous comment. Um, and then even right, to have right. having, having an affair with the, with the Turkish ambassador's yeah. son or something. Yeah. Yes. And yeah, that whole, you know, just really interesting dynamics um, when you think back about it. But and they didn't have to worry about cybersecurity and encryption. And <laughs> No, no. But, you know, I think that's actually a great transition, right? Because, you know, you talk about having to exert um, your strength when not necessarily being allowed or being expected to do that. I mean... You're an immensely successful security and privacy executive. Let's face it, in a field where it's very much male dominated, and I have a lot of CISO friends, and and I I love working with the with the women a lot more. I think because I think a lot of it is about consensus building, right? You if you go in feet first, which is typically what a lot of you know the men leads do. Please, please don't be mad if you're a man CISO. Don't feel angry with me. But I think that a lot of it, and I think especially in the industry you're in, in Markel, right? It's insurance is an old school industry. It's been around for a long time. And I think you you hit on one thing, and I want to sort of use that to build off of is the concept of we do things because we've always done them that way, right? And I think there are some great parables that sort of lead into that. So how do you as a leader in this sort of super dynamic, ever-changing thing, how do you push for that change when you know people are going to push back and say, well, we've always done it this way. Let's keep doing it that way. So I'm sure the audience would love to hear your, your thoughts and experiences on that. Um, so I have, I have 
I think in most of my life, let alone most of my career, have not handled status quo well. So I went into the military when a lot of women were not in the military. I had the audacity to get married and then pregnant and was promptly asked if I would like to leave the military. <laughs> so I don't, um, I haven't done things traditionally, probably because I was the youngest of five kids and there was a survival technique. So I've been doing risk management my entire life and didn't really know it. Surviving as the youngest of five kids has something to do with that. But I think all these little things that happened throughout my career um, probably built in some, obviously, personal resilience. And I think that's an important part of uh, what I look for when I'm, I'm looking for leaders in my organization. Um, but, you know, how do you deal with uh, the mentality of we have always done it that way? Um, it is, let's challenge that and maybe make a game out of it. Let's find a way to introduce a new idea and maybe it doesn't have to be my idea. And that's another thing that I think, um, my mom gave me a plaque when I was going to my first overseas assignment. And the plaque said, a lot more good could be done in the world if people didn't care who got credit. I and I think- I love that, love that. It is so powerful because you know, a lot of times you're sitting in a room and you have an idea and everybody goes, oh, we couldn't possibly do that. You're insane. You're crazy. And about five days later, someone else says it almost exactly the same words. And it's a great idea. And you're like, doesn't matter as long as the outcome gets us to what we need to get to. So if we stop worrying about who gets credit, and start focusing on what is the outcome, regardless of who gets credit, because everyone in that room knew who said it first. There's no sense of going, hey, I said that first. That's not going to get you anywhere. Let them have the idea. Um, but you planted the seed. Now the problem is you've got to water it. So I think that's the other problem of we've always done it this way. We... Um, we have done it this way for a long time. And the unfortunate part is many of us are dealing with the, the legacy of that. And that's what I call the sins of the past. And those are the legacy systems that weigh down our ability to be digitally enabled or go through that digital transformation. You got all this tech debt kind of hanging around in your pockets and it causes problems as you want to push forward. So the, 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 I don't want to do it because we've always done it this way works to a point. And you kind of have to either artificially create that point. Um, you have to find people that are willing to have a conversation. It's a lot of consensus driven. I love it when you said that before, Jeffrey. Um, sometimes it means you got to take people out to lunch. You've got to have conversations where they're in a more comfortable, casual environment than sitting in an office in a meeting room with a bunch Wait, of Wait, so you, you eat with people you disagree with? How, how could you do that? That's a horrible thought. Oh my goodness, it's the best way, right? I mean, that's what we do at Markel, although I call it the, the 20 pounds I gained when I came here because we do eat a lot. Um, Richmond's a big food city, so if you haven't been here, there's a lot of foodies around here. Um, so... Going out, breakfast, lunch, 
Um, I, I try not to spend dinner with people at work. I try to spend that with family, but you know, it's, you got to find a place where you can have a conversation and say, Hey, you know, I know we've always done it this way and it ain't broken and nobody wants to fix it because it ain't broken, but it's not going to scale. So let's have a conversation about where we want to go and let's back into what the right answer is. Um, so sometimes you got to lead people along with you. And sometimes you have to realize that I like to say certain companies will do things with purpose in mind. They won't do it because compliance is saying you have to do this thing because compliance says I have to. There's certainly things you have to do to, to maintain uh, compliance and regulatory, but do it with purpose. Like there's, there's, why do I want to do an upgrade to a system when I can just leapfrog? Like I haven't upgraded the system in five generations. Is it better for us to just not do the five upgrades and just leapfrog into the new tech? I mean, there's opportunity to have those conversations. Um, and I think you have to show efficiency and cost savings and managing risk, which is really right. kind of the primary thing. So it's, it's interesting you say that because one of the things that I've been talking to people a long time, you know, before I came to Black Kite, I was at Gartner for 15 years and I advised colleagues of yours all over. And I always tell them, look, your bosses care about three things, money coming in, money going out. And if something goes sideways, who's getting in trouble? And you just hit all three of those in, in your, your thing. And, you know, the, the, it's always been done that way. That, that to me is always such an interesting thing. I, I used to work with the CISO for a medical device company years and years ago. And she told me a great story. She claimed it as her own, but I have since heard it from a couple of other places. So the family's at Easter dinner and uh, mom cuts the ends off the ham and she puts it in the pan. And the daughter says, hey, mom, how come you did that? She said, I don't know. My mom used to do it. And they went and they asked her mom. And her mom said, I don't know. Graham used to do it. So they go over and great Graham, she's like 92 years old. And she's, you know, drinking her Harvey's Bristol cream in the corner. And they go over and they say, so great Graham, how come you cut the ends off the ham? She said, well, we were poor and we only had one pan and it didn't fit the whole ham. So three generations later, they were cutting the ends off the ham for no reason, because it's always been done that way. And I think that that's a great, and feel free to use that story and don't credit me. Um, but I just, I think that's a great story because so much of what we do, and, and I think your example of, of why would we go one step at a time and we can leapfrog, that's something we talk about when we talk about product management internally, right? Why, why do the next thing when we can go six steps ahead? Let's jump ahead. Let's get ahead. And with the recognition, sometimes you upset the apple cart a little bit. But I think it's a really, really powerful sort of example um, to, to talk about. And I think it's an operational thing, not just a security thing, right? Um, you know, when I used to advise people, I would say, look, in good conscience, I'm not going to tell you you got to rip out a $15 million system because you can't secure it. If it still works, let's figure out what we can do to make sure that it's it's safe and, and secure. So I love that. Um, so you talked about consensus building. And I, I just want to kind of expand on that because I think that that to me is one of the key roles of a security and risk executive, right? Is getting all of the different stakeholders to, to build consensus. So I would imagine you are part of an executive team where there are some people that have been around a long time and they're stuck in their ways um, I would hesitate to call people stodgy, but you know, is it, it is what it is. So 
how do you, because you're essentially the fulcrum of a lot of risk management decisions. So how do you sort of, how do you do that consensus building sort of from the beginning through the final decision? So, so first of all, fortunately, I don't have to really worry about that here. So there's a lot of forward and progressive thinking. Really fortunate here at Markel. Um, now, mind you, I'm, I'm going to throw a number out there. So I have been here next month. I will have been here seven years, which is pretty unheard of for a CISO. You know, we're usually a fly in kind of that seagull management, fly in, yell at everybody, fly out, you know, every 12, 18 to 24 months, we're changing job. Um, and I, I will say that the longer you percolate in your job, I think the more effective you can become because you're going to learn the personalities. You're going to know who your stakeholders are. Um, I think that's the hardest part in a major corporation is being able to really understand the business. So when I first got here, I went on like a listening journey and I listened. Um, but I really think you've got to really figure out who's going to be the stakeholder in the room. And there's an evolutionary process that happens. You, I got some good advice from Alan Paller. I don't know if you know who Alan is. Yeah, from Sands. Yep. You know, rest in peace. He's no longer with us. But Alan gave me some great advice at one of my first conferences. And he he, he actually gave it to the room, but I, I like to claim that he gave it to me. I'm, um, I'm okay with that. Um, and he said, the best way to get thrown out of an executive's office is to walk in and say, I'm sorry, can't do that because you're violating policy. The best advice I ever got. So for the CISOs who throw around regulatory policies, things like that, you're not going to get anywhere. What you have to do is appeal to those three things that you talked about, right? What money coming in, money going out and risk management. So I won't say who's going to get in trouble when things go sideways, but it's about managing the risk. What we what we need to get really good at, and, and I've heard, uh, I heard another CISO talk about this, so I'm not going to take credit for it, but I'm not going to say who it was. They actually took the NIST control framework and they looked at each one of the controls and they said, these are the controls that make up our policy. Who owns those controls? So instead of it being, you know, things go sideways and everyone looks at me, it's going to be more about managing risk across the enterprise based on who's making the decisions. So if I make a decision to not patch a system or not upgrade it, who's making the decision? And what I kept hearing is the business says we can't patch that system. And I'm like, why aren't we patching? It's a critical patch. Why aren't we patching it? Well, it's financial month end close. And I said, that happens every month at the same time. So have we talked to the business to say, hey, we need to apply this patch because if we don't, this is what could happen. Uh, well, they know. And I'm like, really? Well, I'm going to go talk to that person. And the minute you go talk to that person, they're like, well, oh, it's that? Oh, no, we want to patch the system. So as soon as you start talking to people about the risk and really getting to the person who's making the decision, the conversation completely changes, right? But the hard part for CISOs is navigating who is the person saying no 
Who's the person saying, I don't want to do something? And have they been educated and informed about what could happen? Because as soon as you take that piece of paper and say, here, sign off on this risk, because you're accepting it on behalf of the entire company, then it becomes a completely different question or conversation. Then it becomes more of a conversation of, oh, well, I didn't really realize how bad that risk was. I didn't really realize that's what I was accepting the risk of. Right, because nobody told them. We're assuming. We're offended and concerned on their behalf without talking to them. Exactly. That's exactly it. Yeah, I love that. And as soon as you have that, and it's really like you're, like, you know, we talk about we're not the office of no, we're the office of yes, but. Well, the but is like, are you taking that and going and educating people? Or are you just telling them, hey, you need to patch your systems. You need to change your password. Not telling them why, like you're accepting risk for the company by not changing your password, by not invoking multi-factor authentication, by not doing these things. This is the risk you're accepting to the company. Oh, and by the way, here's how much it's going to cost us if that gets exploited. So that's been another problem. We just, we are, CISOs are not quite there yet where we can say, if that thing gets exploited, here's how much it's going to cost us. We're really good at going, mm, catastrophic failure of the network, it's going to cost us $4 billion. $4 billion? Has that mm. ever cost anybody $4 billion? No. Well, so, it did cost Equifax $4 billion, but they're about it. Um, yeah, well, I'm, yeah, we could have lots of conversations about <laughs> the who's and the what's, but again... Is a ransomware going to cost you $4 billion? Are you really going to be down hard for how many months? What's the cost? You know, be realistic about it. Don't go in with this ginormous number. So do your research. You know, Gartner's got a lot of data. So I love that you work there, Jeffrey. I didn't know that. Um, I probably did and didn't pay attention because you're so great at so many things. I, I just. Oh, thank you, Patty. Yeah. See, I'm in black and white, otherwise you see me blushing. <laughs> yeah, you're going to cut that part out. Anyway, um, I just, I think, I think we have to be realistic about it and, and come up with good quantifiable numbers. What is it realistically going to cost this company? You know, and it's not that hard to figure out. Take the annual salaries, take that for a year, divide it by the number of employees you have. I like to do simple math. Um and figure out an hourly rate. And that hourly rate is whatever total salary, total number of employees divided by 2,080 hours, which is a work year. What is it going to cost you per hour when you're down? Pretty easy to figure out, right? Total system outage, one hour outage costs us X number of dollars. Yeah, That's I, a I, number. I like that because I, I think I think you're right. I think people try to make this stuff much, much too complicated. I'm a big fan of um, Fermi, the old physicist. He used to teach at the University of Chicago. And he had this great thing. Um, he, on the first day of class, he would ask his students, how many piano tuners are there in the city of Chicago? You're like, oh, how would I know that? He goes, well, what's the population of Chicago? Well, we know that. What percentage of people do you think have pianos? What percentage of those people do you think tune them? How long does it take to tune a piano? And he basically walked people through and they came up with a number and they were close enough to make decisions. 
And I think I, years ago when I was in consulting, I had um, an engagement manager and um, his thing was, let's get this thing round enough to roll because we would stay up trying to get it perfect. And, and I think you're spot on. And let's be fair, if you go in front of the CFO and you say the risk is $1,219,335.33, they are throwing you out because they know you can't get to that level of precision. They can't get to that level of precision. Isn't that, why Excel Isn't that why Excel spreadsheets let you to move the, the number over so there's no zeros? <laughs> yeah, but you know. But perfection, perfection to me is the death of innovation. And that we get paralyzed. We, we get paralyzed by perfection in cyber. I agree. And, and I, I always tell people, I go, everyone knows you're smart and you know stuff. They don't want to know all the stuff you know. They want to know what do we need to know about that. And, and I'll tell you, um, just before COVID, uh, I was at an event in New York City, and uh, they had five board members up on stage at the very end of the event talking about cyber. And I raised my hand and I asked what I thought was a pretty simple question. I said, so if your CISO or your CIO comes and they show you stuff and you don't know what it's supposed to mean or why or you don't understand it, are you telling them? And all five of them said, no, but we probably should, right? And I went, yeah, because they're coming in and they're telling you stuff and they think they did a great job and they walk out and you, they think they heard you. And then you come back in six months and go, hey, look at what I did. And they go, well, why'd you do that? Right? And, and I love, I'm a big fan of perfection is the enemy of good, but I actually like yours better, right? Which is perfection is the, is the enemy of innovation because- that's much more business oriented. And I think that's, it, it that's just, an incredibly powerful thing. Yeah, it so. just totally stifles innovation. I think the other thing that we get stuck in is um, we want to change things. We need to change our process. We need to change the way we do business. I would argue, and I saw this quote, I stole it and I don't know who I stole it from. It's outside my oh, it used to be outside my office. Now there's a Santa out it's there. It's so good somebody stole it. <laughs> it used it said, uh, Change fixes the past, transformation creates the future. And that's where we have to get to. We have to, in, in security and privacy, we have to start transforming. We have to start creating the future. We are so stuck in the, I have to have a firewall. I have to have perimeter security. I have to have patch management, right? You have to, you have, to have good cyber hygiene. You have to have the basic foundations in place. Then from there, we need to start thinking about how are we using artificial intelligence and machine learning responsibly, I'm going to put that in there, to try to create the transformation our companies need. How are we automating capabilities? How are we creating automated capabilities that feed reports where we can actually get to what's meaningful for our for the board or for our corporate executives to understand we we used to be security practitioners in the early days so when i started being a ciso it was 2002 and we were like we were security practitioners firewall experts probably a better word um, and and we worried about that perimeter we worried about the tools that we had it was all about tools and as as 
but decades moved on and fortunately or unfortunately I came along with it. We are now risk managers. We used to be like security professionals. Now we're like doing all kinds of things. We're looking at business operations and resilience. We're looking at data protection controls. We're looking at third-party vendor risk management and how we even do that. You know, sometimes it makes my head want to explode. There are so many issues that are out there that we have to think about where before it used to be just worry about what's inside the moat. And then something happened and we let our parents have access to the internet. It just kind of all went to hell in a handbasket there. You know, it's, it's funny you say that. I So I've been in security for almost 30 years now. When I first started, you could know everything. You could know all of it. And yeah. now it's like not even close, especially in an organization like like yours. And and I, I've been saying that that whole, you know, security transition to risk management for a long time. And I think, unfortunately, there are not enough people like you out there. I still think there are too many leaders out there who still think it's a technology thing, uh, who still think it's you can solve all these problems by buying tools. And I think you hit on something important. I just I can't emphasize it enough. Talk to people. My, my old colleague at Gartner, Paul Proctor, someone asked him one time, how do you know what the board wants? He said, you could ask them, but everybody's afraid to do that, right? What's important to you? And I always tell people, never ever ask them, does this make sense? Because that's very insulting. What you can say is, does this help you make better decisions? Right? Well, and that's I think the kind of thing we need to get to. I hear so many people talk about, oh, you know, I'm putting how many incidents we had in front of the board. And I'm like, no one cares. What vertical market are you in? Like if you're a high tech company, sure, your board's probably very technical. They That's probably what they want to hear. They might want to hear that. I don't know. But I, I think the boards want to hear things about any sort of thing that has material impact to the financial stability of the company. And there well, are back to what we talked about before. Money coming in, money going out. And what happens if something bad happens, right? Well, and are you, I mean, so what's your mean time to respond? Do you have an incident response process? Do you have a crisis management working group or a team of people that when things go sideways, doesn't matter what it is, could be buildings uninhabitable, could be workplace violence, could be a cyber thing. Do you have a group of executives that all get together and then you say, hey, it's this event. You five people can go. You six people have to stay because you're going to be the decision makers in this. And who's the event commander? Who's going to Who's going to quarterback the whole thing? And for Pete's sakes, the most important part of any incident, who's going to communicate to people and when? When do we talk to the board? When do we talk to the press? When do we notify our customers? All of that is about communication. It's the one thing we learned during 9-11, Jeffrey. So I was activated as critical staff for the secretary, the acting secretary of treasury when I was at the treasury department during 9-11. We had practiced every scenario you could think of, except evacuating a major city. We did not practice that. We did not plan for planes to hit buildings. But what we clearly, clearly, clearly recognized is communication was critical. Our economists being able to talk to the press, to calm everybody down, we got Wall Street, we've got the financial markets, it's under control. That was the most important and the most critical thing. And I cannot emphasize that enough to people. When stuff goes sideways, you can have and you can practice and practice and practice. But when it all goes sideways and a plane hits a building, all those people who said, I want to be part of the critical team, all of a sudden they were like, 
I want to go home and be with my family because I don't know what's going to happen. So you end up with a much smaller group of people, which means you can react much faster, but you've got to have somebody that has presence to say, here are the three, four, or five things we need to do. And we need to do them in some sort of sequence and someone needs to manage communication. And it all gets into risk management. How are you going to communicate to the board and your shareholders? At the end of the day, is it going to impact your 10K and your filings? Well, a very wise man named Mike Tyson said, everyone has a plan until they get punched in the face. <laughs> and I think that's the thing. And I, I, was, also in, I was also in New York d- during 9-11. And um, I saw a lot of the things you were talking about. And, and it was amazing how people pulled together. But, you know, you mentioned something very important, I think, that we should share. So I used to run a lot of tabletop exercises around incident response. And the first thing I did was I changed everyone's jobs. You're the CIO. For this exercise, you're the CFO. You're the CFO. You're the CIO. And you know what you always hear? Wow, I never thought about it that way before. And that's the whole point, right? And, and you know, being with your family, I... I remember I did a, a business continuity engagement for a client a bunch of years ago. And they said, well, we want to plan for a nuclear uh, incident. And I said, I got to be honest with you. If a nuke comes in, people are curled up onto the coffee table holding onto their kids. They're not interested in recovering your stupid business. They did not like that. But well, It's it, like when people say, hey, what happens when we have a catastrophic outage of you know, the Azure or the AWS cloud? And I'm like, uh, I think there's a whole lot of companies who are in trouble. Right. So I think we got to look at our contracts, <laughs> make sure we've got something in the yeah. contract. But, there's but it a comes lot back to what you said before, which is, and I'm going to paraphrase, but security is important. It ain't as important as some people think it is. No, no. It's right? important. It's important yeah. because it's our profession. It's what we do. But when you start looking, again, this gets into the conversation with your executives. When you look at the grand scheme of things, and this was a hard lesson for me to learn, and it took a lot of years for me to figure this out. Um, although I had the CIO at uh, at the tre- at um, sorry at TSA said to me, "You wield a tremendous amount of power with that security wand that you have," and. And that was really important for me to hear at that point in my career. But you do wield a lot of power with that security wand that we all have. Now use it responsibly. Like, you know, understand that the CEO of the company is trying to run a corporation to make money. That's the whole thing about companies, unless you're a nonprofit. But, but, even, but even in nonprofits, they have business goals. Public sector has business goals. It's not about right. profit, but there is a mission somewhere that yeah. we need to aspire to. And I, and I think you're, you're spot on. So um, unfortunately, Patty, we are, we are um, over the time that, that oh. I had a lot of, I want it. No, no, I, I, you and I could talk all day uh, <laughs> and I would definitely like to have you back. So we said a lot of stuff. Well, Patty said a lot of stuff. I blathered. So a couple of things. Um, Patty loves Downton Abbey. I like that. A holiday. I'm going to have to check that out with my family. Um, Patty does not like talking about presenting to the board, which is something we talked about before we actually started recording. Um, We talked about it anyway, didn't we? (laughs) We did. You know what? It always comes back to that. Um, Security people should focus on the business and we should not get so overly impressed that we wave our magic wand at everything that goes bump in the night. So Patty, it has been an absolute pleasure and an honor. Uh, Thank you all for joining us on Risk and Reels. 
I am Jeffrey Wheatman, your host. Stay safe, stay healthy, stay secure. Thank you for listening to Risk and Reels, a cybersecurity podcast. Be sure to follow us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to riveting 30-minute conversation about movies and cybersecurity. Jeffrey will be on the road this year at some of the industry's biggest events, but you can always find him on LinkedIn and Twitter at Jeffrey Wheatman. This podcast is powered by Blackkite, the only security rating service to deliver the highest quality intelligence to help organizations make better risk decisions.